Johnny was four years old. He followed his mother everywhere. He, he was like a little, uh, a little bloodhound, just constantly trailing behind mom, underfoot all day long. Time and time again, she tried to, to get him to do something different. Johnny, go, go play with your toys. Jo- Johnny, go, go outside. And he was right there, just underfoot the whole time. And after turning around and stepping on him for the fifth time, she, she began to lose patience. She, she said, Johnny, why are you following me so closely? And he said, well, Mommy, my Sunday school teacher told me to walk in Jesus' footsteps, but I can't see him, so I'm walking in yours. <laughs> Some of you can resonate with that story. You've had the experience of having a little one traipsing around behind you. Maybe it hadn't been too long ago. You understand how extreme frustration can turn into overwhelming love in a moment when one of those little guys says something like that. It may have been yesterday. It may have been, as John said earlier, decades ago, but you understand. And so those memories make today a sweet and special day. For others of you, you would desperately long to have that experience. And for reasons only known to heaven You have not. It has been denied you. And so you'd take all the frustrations of raising a little one happily just to know that joy. And so that makes today a hard day for you. For others, maybe you're here today and you're grieving the loss of a little one traipsing along behind you. Or maybe this is the first Mother's Day without your own mom. And so today is a bittersweet day full of happy memories, but there's some pain there too. Regardless of how you understand this day, I'm glad you're here because we're going to be talking about one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. I want to thank you for joining us here at Chapel Rock today. If it's your first time here or if you've only been coming for a couple weeks, uh, I'd love to meet you personally. So when we're done uh, today, I'm going to be right down front, right down here, and I'd just love for you to come down and say hi uh, and and let uh, just we can greet each other. Uh, If you're joining us online, uh, thank you for for logging in from wherever you are. Shout out to those of you in New York. We're (laughs) glad you're uh, logged in. Uh, We're thankful that you've done that and uh, just would hope that uh, what happens here today will help you take your next step with Jesus. Uh, And if you're local, we'd love to have you join us on site. Uh, We're going to continue our sermon series today. We're going to conclude it, rather, uh, the one we started back on Easter called You Ask For It. And these are questions taken from our congregation. The final question is from one of our moms, uh, Cheryl Dobbs, who asks, why do people think that love can't be the answer to the world's problems? Instead, it's seen as just touchy-feely, tree-hugger, too simple, instead of what it really is, the hardest, truest answer. It's a good question. It's a significant question. And so if I can, what I'd like to do is pull the camera lens back a little further and ask, how can I love like Jesus loved? Because I think we would all agree, we would all recognize that he actually did that. (laughs) That his love really did change the world. It certainly divides time, doesn't it? B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. (laughs) The way we divide time is based on the life of Jesus. The way that he loved people. It made an impact. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about that today. If you've got your Bibles, open them to 1 John 4.15. 1 John 4.15. We're going to be talking about love today. 
There's so much confusion out there about what love is. I, I, I'm, as you know by now, well, uh, <laughs> uh, I very much enjoy quoting C.S. Lewis. I think he, he pretty much said uh, something good about everything. Uh, but C.S. Lewis defined it this way. He said, love is unselfishly choosing for another's highest good. Love is unselfishly choosing for another's highest good. And that idea is not original to Lewis. Uh, it, that essential thought goes back at least as far as Augustine in the mid-300s AD, probably further. Uh, I couldn't track down the exact source of who defined it this way, but love is seeking the highest good of another. That's the, the simplest, most complete definition of what love is. It's looking out for the highest good of another person, which may or may not correspond to what they want, Moms, you know this, right? Little kid, can I have cake? No, you can't have cake. You, you haven't had dinner yet, but I want cake, but you can't have it. I want nine pounds of cake. You can't have nine pounds of cake. It's not good for you. You'll get sick. So sometimes love is seeking the highest good of another even when it's not something that they want. Real love is inherently unselfish, and focused on the good of another. Here's what I want you to understand this morning about this important question. It's today's big idea. You can love like Jesus when you're not afraid to seek another's highest good. The essence of Christianity is love, but it's not the mushy hallmark kind that's used to sell greeting cards and giant boxes of gamble chocolate. You know what gamble chocolate is, right? It's when they don't label what it is, and you take a bite, and you don't even know. Like, oh, I got the one filled with toothpaste. Great. Um, <laughs> the kind of love that Christianity teaches, the kind of love that Jesus modeled is something far richer, far more profound, far more inherently unselfish, and far more likely to change the world. When Jesus defined love, he did it in a way that still, to this day, confounds people. It, it, it stumps them, it causes them to wrestle with what it means. The New Testament talks about love in many different ways, but when we look at the whole thing, we see two really big aspects to the way that Jesus loved, that he knew how to reject fear and how to embrace service. So let's talk about those. Jesus knew how to reject fear. That's the first aspect. We answer the question, how do I love like Jesus? Well, the first part of it is you've got to reject fear. John the Apostle, the one known to us in Scripture as the disciple whom Jesus loved, <laughs> now he loved all 12 of them, but John had a special place in his heart. That disciple, the apostle, that, the disciple that Jesus loved, wrote this in 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. Or excuse me, starting in verse 15. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world... We are, to love like, we are like Jesus, but there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. 
So what is this saying to us today? I, I think one of the most significant aspects of this, um, I, I, I didn't read it before, I started at a paragraph. Could you go back and put verse 16 back up there, guys? Uh, I, want, I want us to look at this again, uh, the beginning of verse 16. John says, so we know and rely on the love God has for us. That's, those are really significant words. The word know and the word rely there are really significant. The word know there is, is experiential knowledge, that you've experienced it. The word rely there is talking about trust and dependency. What, what John is saying here is that we are supposed to experience the love of God, and we are supposed to depend on the love of God in our lives. That's how we, as the next verse says, live in love. That's how we do that. See, the word live there means to abide, to dwell, to reside. You are supposed to make your home in the love of God. And that's why in this world you will always feel like an alien and a stranger, 1 Peter says. <laughs> because this world does not know the love of God. Not like we do. But they can. It's open. It's free. Whosoever, John 3.16 says, but this is why we always feel a little out of place in this world. <laughs> because we've known the love of God. We've experienced the love of God. We've learned to depend on it so that we live in it, he says. You need to understand that the most mature Christians in the world are not the ones who can hold forth for hours on some minor point of Christian theology. The most mature Christians in the world are not the ones who go to the farthest, darkest corners of the globe to plant churches. The most mature Christians in the world are not the ones who have some ecstatic spiritual experience that transforms their life. No, the most mature Christians in the world are the ones who know and rely and live the love of God. Now, if they do that other stuff, great. But the essential mark of Christian maturity is love. There is a reason it is known as the primary fruit of the Spirit. There's a reason it is the greatest of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 13. And when you have experienced and learned to trust the love of God, you don't need to be afraid anymore. John says perfect love casts out, it drives out fear. Erwin McManus in his book, The Barbarian Way, writes that love is not so much a guarantee of warm feelings as, and happiness as it is a promise of pain. The more you love someone, the more you give them permission to hurt you. Loving like Jesus is not about having warm, fuzzy feelings toward people. It's about living a lifestyle where we impact the world around us the same way Jesus did. So we need to reject fear. I think there are two components to this. The first one is this. You need to reject the fear that you're going to get hurt. You've got to reject the fear that you're going to get hurt. Jesus came to earth to die on the cross in our place for our sins. He knew that going into it. He wrestled with it in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? Three times he prayed, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But it's not about me. It's about what you want. And I love him too much. <laughs> and so Jesus rejected the fear of, the, of separation from God, first and foremost, I think the thing he was most afraid of, or could have been afraid of, had Jesus ever felt that same kind of fear that we do. He rejected that. He rejected the, the pain that was coming because of love. I met way too many Christians who didn't live the love of Jesus because they were too afraid to get hurt. 
I don't want to get hurt, so I'm not going to really give myself to another. If we're going to be like Jesus, we have to reject that fear. I mean, think about it. How many times have we disappointed God by our sin, our selfishness, by our lack of love, and yet he still loves us? (laughs) That God himself has chosen to reject the fear of getting hurt (laughs) because he loves us. In the same way, we must not be afraid to love others. So, you know, reject the fear of getting hurt. Also, reject the fear of someone who's different than you. I mean, in every measurable way, there's never been two more different beings in existence than the eternal, perfect, glorious person of God, the Son, and we human beings who are by nature mortal, broken, and debased. And yet, in the midst of that, God chose to love us by sending us His perfect Son, sending us Himself in the person of Him, Son. We're very, very different, you and I and God. And yet, He loves us. He sent Himself to us. He came to be like us. In the same way, if we're going to have the love of God, we've got to, be, we've got to reject being afraid of someone who's different from us. Church, if we're going to reach our redemptive potential, then we have got to get our heads, our hearts, and our hands around this idea of loving those who are different than we are. And so my challenge to you this week is to seek out someone, intentionally seek out someone who is different from you and love them. Don't be afraid. Love someone who's different from you. Don't worry about being rejected. Love someone who's different from you. Love somebody who votes differently than you do. Love someone whose affections are given to a a different gender than, than who you would choose to give yours to. Don't be afraid to love someone who wakes who who makes way less than you do or way more than you do. Don't be afraid to love someone who believes in a different God or no God than you do. Is that hard? Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. But it's better. And it makes us more like Jesus. And that's what the world desperately needs. But that's not all. It's not just about rejecting fear. There's another aspect to loving like Jesus. It's about embracing service. The love of Jesus was a love that fundamentally embraced service. As Jesus and his disciples were gathering for what would be their last meal together, the devil was bearing down on them. Betrayal is in the air. Jesus knows it. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John 13. It's not going to be up on the screen, I don't think, but but go ahead and just turn there. John 13. Jesus knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. He has authority over all things. He knows that he has come from God and he's returning to God. His his power, his status are divine. He knows it. He knows that Judas is betraying him. He knows that, that he has the power to do something about it. And so with such knowledge, what does he do? He washes feet. Look with me at John 13, starting in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. 
And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. See, to understand the meaning behind what Jesus does here, we need to understand the culture. Guests who, who would collect dust on their feet uh, while traveling um, were ordinarily offered water where they could wash their own feet when they came into someone's home. There's a, there's a bowl and a pitcher full of water, and they were offered that as an opportunity to do that. And say, that's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? Well, think about this. The roads were dusty, and pretty much everybody wore sandals. How do your sandals smell after a day walking outside in the summer? Right? I mean, it's just, it's just a common courtesy when you enter someone's home to, to try to not offend them, you know, when you remove your, your shoes, all right? Um, they, you were offered water to wash your own feet. And special hospitality was extended to someone uh, when the host would have a slave wash your feet, but it was only a Gentile slave. Even Jewish slaves were not required to do this. They didn't have to. Now, if, if a Jew owned a Gentile slave, they could make them do it. Uh, but it, it was still very much seen as a very, very, very lowly task to wash the feet of another person. And what is so shocking in this story is the vivid image of God, the Son, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, taking a shameful, lowly posture in relation to his disciples. I want you to hear me. There is no other example in all of ancient literature of a, of a master washing his disciples' feet. Prior to the coming of Jesus, this never, ever happened in the ancient world. It is completely and utterly original and unique for Jesus to do this. And so then when Jesus ties a towel around him in the fashion of a slave and actually uses that towel to wipe the feet of his disciples once he'd washed them, this, this, this display of affection and love is utterly humbling and incredibly symbolic. Let me tell you a story. Jeff was a pastor of a church in San Francisco. Uh, in his neighborhood, there was a homosexual couple that he had been getting to know. Uh, he had talked with Steve and Chris. Uh, he had shared Jesus with them. They, they did not believe. Um, they did not experience the gospel. Instead, they had really only felt a fair degree of hostility from the people who were supposed to love them. <laughs> but they knew Jeff. They liked Jeff. One day Jeff was in his office, he was working on his sermon, and the phone rang. It was Steve. Steve said, Jeff, can you come over? I, Chris and I are both very sick, they were both HIV positive. When Jeff arrived at the house, he came in and was almost knocked to his knees by the overwhelming odor of extreme illness. Chris was lying on the couch, he was too sick to move, a foul mess on the floor next to him. So Jeff simply went to the bathroom and got a towel and came over and got down on his knees and began cleaning up the sick on the floor. At that time, Steve walked into the room from another bathroom in their home. And he saw this Christian man on his knees, basically acting like a mom for these two guys, cleaning up. 
He later said, that was the first time I saw what Jesus looks like. He looks like Jeff. I love that story. And it's not because a pastor is the hero of it. I love it because it teaches us the same two lessons that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples in John 13. First of all, we're supposed to serve in a way that interrupts our life. Our service is supposed to interrupt our life. If life really isn't about you, then there are going to be some interruptions that come along the way. I want you to notice in verse 2 of John 13, it says that the evening meal was in progress. It's the middle of the meal that this happens. They've been sharing together for some time. See, Jesus doesn't wash their feet right when they come in. It would have still been shocking, but it would have been seen as incidental to them arriving from the road. Instead, he waits until the evening meal is in full bloom. And then he goes and he washes their feet. Secondly, I want you to notice in verse 4, the text says that Jesus got up from the meal. On a cultural level, as the master with disciples, he should have been served by his disciples. Instead, he gets up from his own meal and he serves them. I saw the inverse of this when, we flew, when I flew to Israel last summer. Um, I, I was seated right here in the aisle, and, and up one row and over from the aisle from me was, I believe, a rabbi. I'm pretty sure, based on what he was wearing. Might have been a wizard. I don't know. But, but he was a rabbi. I, I think he was a, a pretty sure. <laughs> really, I'm serious. Really ornate robe. A lot of, lot of interesting things going on. No, I'm just kidding. I, I know he was a rabbi because his disciple was in the seat in front of me. This guy, ne- in a, on an 11-hour flight, he never stopped moving. Constantly getting up to serve his master. On an 11-hour flight, the, the, the rabbi got up one time to use the restroom. He never had, just, that was it. The rest of the time, he remained seated and he was served by his disciple. Constantly, for 11 hours. And I look at what Jesus does here. And it blows my mind. He stops in the middle of the meal. They're not done eating yet. And he gets up and he wraps the garment of a slave around himself and he serves his disciples. You see, that's the second thing. We're supposed to serve in a way that's personal. See, Jesus... Is, is allowing himself to be interrupted here. His love for his disciples allows him to be interrupted. And so I want to ask you, does God have the right to interrupt your life so that you can serve other people? And, and I hope you answer yes, and when you do, then what he asks of you is to serve in a way that's personal. Jesus had every right, culturally, to command one of the twelve to do this. Would have been unusual. There probably would have been some pushback from the guys but he could have commanded it. Instead, he did it himself to show them what real love looks like. He allowed his own experience to be interrupted. He served in a way that's personal. Did you see the emphasis on the fact that it was Jesus who did these things? Catch the pronouns here. He loved them to the end. He got up. He washed his disciples' feet. It's personal service. It's intimate to touch someone else's feet. How many of you have ever been to a foot washing? Raise your hand. How many of you have ever seen that done? How many of you have ever had that done to you? It's incredibly humbling, isn't it? 
it, it just, it, on, on every level, it's very, very, like, I, I get Peter's reaction in the next verse. We didn't read it, but he's like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? It's an, it's an intensely personal experience. Maybe you saw the thing floating around Facebook this week. This is what do I want for Mother's Day? I want you. Written from the perspective of a mom. It's this personal connection. It's about presence. And by the way, that's P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. <laughs> that kind of presence. It's relational, and we all crave this expression of love. And did you notice the emphasis on the physicality of what Jesus is doing in verses 4 and 5? Pay attention to the verbs. He got up from the meal. He wrapped himself in a towel. He poured water. He washed their feet. He dried their feet. Jesus' love for them is love in action. It's service. And it would be a mistake to think that we can serve people without getting involved on a personal, active level. Listen, love is hard. One of my favorite preachers, Haddon Robinson, told this story. He, he said, one time after I'd preached a sermon on love, a man came up to me and said, you said that love means seeking another person's highest good. Yes, he said. He said, all right, that's fine. But here's the situation. My business puts me in competition with another man in this congregation. Now, I run an efficient operation that allows me to sell my product, which is very similar to his, at a price that's substantively lower than his. So what's the loving thing to do? Do I keep my prices the same in order to love my competitor, who is also my brother in this congregation, you know, and, and, and I, that way I love him, he stays in business, I'm able to take, you know, to, to, uh, to, to love on him, or do I lower my prices, become more successful, drive him out of business, but treat my employees better? What do I do? Haddon Robinson said, before I could even answer, the guy went on, he said, that's not the toughest part. The toughest part is, a, a large corporation has just moved into town selling a similar product, and I'm forced now to have to think about, am I going to drastically cut my prices to, to stay in business? And if I do, I guarantee it'll drive my brother out of business. Now, here's the thing. We're both in the same Sunday school class. I coach his sons in Little League. Tell me, preacher, what is the most loving thing to do? I don't know how Haddon Robinson answered him. I'm not sure if he had an answer. I don't know the rest of that story. Maybe he suggested that the most loving thing to do would be for these guys to go into business together and fight the big corporation. I don't know. I do know this. Love, real, Christian, imitating Jesus every day kind of love is hard. It's hard, and it demands a lot of us, kind of like being a good mom. It's also the best way to live. Did you hear me today? You can love like Jesus when you're not afraid to seek another's highest good. And so my challenge for you today is this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to seek another's highest good. Will you cast aside fear and embrace service today? 
Maybe you're here this morning and you've been resisting showing love to someone because you're wrestling with some kind of fear about the situation. We're going to have a time of response, a, a time of decision for you. We'll have decision counselors down front. And maybe you just need someone to pray with you about a difficult situation. Maybe you're in a situation like the one I just described and, and you're like, I, I really don't know what to do here. What is the most loving thing? Maybe I've been invited to a wedding and I'm not sure I agree with what's going on at the wedding and I, do I go? Or maybe I've got a family member that's living in open rebellion against God and, and, and I want to love them, but I, I, I just don't know how to do that right now. Wow. Maybe you just need someone to pray with you about those things. We'll have decision counselors down front. You may also be in a situation where you're like, I really would like to talk to somebody about this. We, we're going to have leaders in our next step room under the yellow awning. And you can go there and you can visit with one of them and, and they can function as a filter for your experience and you can lean on their wisdom as you deal with these situations. Maybe you're here today and, and, and you've just heard about the love of God. We sang about it earlier. You heard me talk about it, about how much Jesus loves us and you want to respond to that. To, to name him as Savior and Lord, to be baptized, to live that life of following Jesus, you're going to have an opportunity to do that now. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together this morning, and you respond as the Lord leads you.